We are preparing to start the discourse of tonight. In the satsangs, in this period of time, we are into the, the spiritual message communicated to the world by Krishna in the fundamental text of spirituality called the Bhagavad Gita under the form of a dialogue which Krishna has with Arjuna, his friend and disciple. We have been analyzing and studying the yogic meanings, the practical meanings, the spiritual meanings, the metaphysical meanings of the message of Krishna as communicated in the Bhagavad Gita for all this season and for part of the previous season. It is um, our decision here to stop after the end of the chapter number six because the first six chapters in the Bhagavad Gita are a unit into themselves. They represent the metaphysical core of the teachings, although the Bhagavad Gita itself counts 18 chapters all in all. And that is why in a couple of weeks, when we will finish with the Bhagavad Gita's chapter 6, then we are going to move to other spiritual texts, analyze them, study them from a spiritual standpoint. And in the chapter number 6, we have reached last time up till the Strophe number 18, today we are going to continue with a shloka, with a verse at number 19, which places us somewhere around the middle of this chapter, chapter number 6, as I said, from the Gita. In this chapter, in the previous shlokas, in the previous verses, Krishna gave a lot of descriptions of the spiritual life, a lot of descriptions of the state of enlightenment. Today, for example, we live in a very confused world, which the ancient yogis have anticipated thousands of years ago, and they called it the world or the epoch, the age of Kali Yuga, in which spirituality is very, very confused and twisted, distorted. <coughs> and because of this, even the spirituality in itself has become twisted and misinterpreted, while 2,000 years ago, spirituality and the spiritual practice was a clearly cut concept, which was respected, given its proper value in the society. Today, spirituality is not only vastly misunderstood, people doing spirituality are questioned in their motivations or whether they are possessed of mental sanity at all. Spirituality itself is questioned severely. Is there any spirituality after all? Is there any need for human beings to practice spirituality? Shouldn't we just eat and sleep and procreate and be merry and that's all life is about, satisfying our five senses and trying to find an elusive happiness in just giving ourselves pleasure and satisfaction of a superficial nature. And that's why what I'm trying to say here is, of course, that very often 
spirituality is misunderstood. I remember of an Indian friend who was complaining about a famous community in India where people were inheriting some very, very flaky spirituality and everybody was going phantasmagorically and crazily into whatever they thought it was spirituality. And he told me, if you go to that community in that city around that people, there are at least 30 so-called self-enlightened masters that are roaming around in that city. And each one of them claims that they are self-realized, spiritual, that they give satsangs, that they give satsang in India means company of the wise, and it means meeting with the gurus who have reached states of spiritual realization so that you can get a bit of a compass, you can be enlightened at least at the level of the mind about some of the main dimensions of spirituality. It's to get guidance by the presence of somebody that can inspire from a spiritual standpoint. So what I'm trying to say is when you read Krishna, when you read Krishna's message like in the chapter number 6, spirituality suddenly becomes more clear because it's about this and that and it is not about this and that. And it is very, very clear that Krishna sets some standards. Krishna announces some norms. It's not like, oh, it's spirituality. And as some people sometimes tend to say, everything goes. That's one of the most stupid statements that you can ever hear in spirituality, that kind of everything goes. No, it doesn't. When you listen to Buddha, it's not at all that everything goes. Buddha is very negative and judgmental about some things in the universe, in the human life, in the activity, and is very, very biased towards some other things which he thinks are the right things. Jesus is not at all on the side that everything goes. Jesus is rabidly against some things which he considers debasing and delusive for the human being and for his or her spirituality. And on the contrary, Jesus is all for some of the things of spirituality. From Rumi to Ramakrishna and from St. Teresa of Avila till Milarepa, all the great people of spirituality have not been flaky in this way, have not been politically correct and like everything goes and everybody can proclaim themselves as being enlightened and maybe maybe the horses are enlightened, maybe the dolphins are enlightened, maybe my right heel is enlightened, maybe the bamboo trees are enlightened, like... I remember in an Indian calendar having read a very good dictum about this, which said when you try to have an open mind, pay attention that your brain doesn't fall off your skull. Because when the mind gets too open, you might become simply stupid by supporting some statements which are simply ridiculous. You see that so much in the new age politically correct spirituality of today, where people have come to the point of claiming some of the most preposterous and ridiculous things 
And that's why I think that a chapter like this one is very useful because Krishna sets some norms. There are some things like spirituality is when this and that. In the previous shloka, number 18, Krishna was saying, when the mind is perfectly controlled and it is satisfied by the self and rests in the self, and then when this is so and so, then we can say about that person, he has reached yoga, he is united, he is in a state of spiritual realization. That means there, there must be some definitions, there must be a discrimination as in the famous Hindu mantra which says lead me from death to immortality, from the ignorance to knowledge and all those, like we need to discriminate between what is transient and ephemeral and what is eternal and absolute and discard one of them and follow the other one of them. Although the ephemeral and the transient have their beauty and have their importance. In a school like Agama, in which the teaching is tantric in nature, even what we call ephemeral and transient is not to be discarded in the meaning of having enmity towards it, having fear from it, but still you have to understand very clearly what is what and to understand that a sunset has its divine value. At the same time, it's a fleeting form of beauty and existence. It is transient. And to understand where one thing can lead you, where another thing can lead you. Otherwise, again, spiritual life becomes very, very chaotic. I think Krishna does a great favor by time and again giving definitions of what is spirituality, what is the real spiritual realization, what is eternity, what is yoga, what is the divine thing, in this way eliminating all these fake, all these mistaken assumptions that maybe spirituality is also that, maybe spirituality is also that, this is again, not aligned with the statements of the great masters, the men and the women of the spiritual history of this planet, who had very clear-cut perceptions about spirituality. And in the strophe number 19, Krishna continues with his metaphors, with his beautiful similes and images, making, trying, he's explaining to Arjuna what true spirituality is. Of course, he leads Arjuna towards a deeper understanding. And he first, or at this point at least, he considers that it is important that Arjuna should be very clear about what the great goal is. In the verse at number 19, Krishna, therefore, says, As a lamp placed in a windless spot does not flicker, to such is compared the yogi of controlled mind, practicing yoga in the self, or absorbed in the yoga of the self. Beautiful image. The yogi 
is compared to a lamp placed in a windless spot that does not flicker. Any one of you who has followed a lamp or a candle, you know that it is the slightest breeze, the slightest draft in the room is enough to make the flame of that lamp flicker, undulate. That is compared by one like Krishna with the mind. It is about the concentration of the mind. It is like the mind is so focused that it becomes like a non-flickering flame. A lamp which does not flicker in a windless place, to such is compared the yogi of subdued thought of controlled mind, practicing union with the self. The self, metaphysically, is Purusha, the transcendent consciousness, Brahman, Nirvana, the non-manifestation, Purusha, the non-manifested spirit, which in Tantra is called Shiva, the Shiva consciousness, and as its opposite, we have Prakriti, the nature, the matter, the manifestation, the universe whose law is change, change, change. Everything which is in the manifestation being subjected to the law of time and space, changes, changes, changes. But there is something which is not of the space and time and which does not change exactly as the hub of a wheel must be steady and immovable while the rest of the wheel spins around it. And each one of these two parts of this mechanism of the wheel has its utility. Therefore, the yogi being focused on the self acquires, according to Krishna, some of the stability of the self. Even the mind of the yogi meditating on the self, being focused on the self, then automatically he starts becoming immobile like the self for five seconds, for five minutes, for five hours, depending on how well trained the yogi is, there appears an immobility. That immobility is immobility at the level of the body, first of all. Some people are so chaotic in their inner universe that even the yogic asanas are impossible for them. And I'm not talking about difficult asanas. Even a simple asana like shavasana, the posture of the corpse used for relaxation, some people get the itches after a few minutes of just staying in that position and they simply become restless. They cannot stay in peace. That is the connection between mind and body. A healthy mind in a healthy body. A stable mind in a stable body. It is very difficult to stabilize the mind as a beginner. But as a beginner, you have got an instrument. You have got a lever by which you can start pushing the mind into getting quiet. And that instrument is the body. 
stabilize the body and slowly, slowly, if the body becomes like a non-flickering candlelight, then your mind with delay, not immediately, but after accumulating a bit of that, your mind starts following reluctantly into that. That's why for some people when the mind is very reckless and very indisciplined, your mind simply tells you, stop doing asanas. Because the mind would rather have that you do aerobics, that you dance, that you shake, that you agitate, instead of just being like a non-flickering flame. After all, your body is a method to coerce the mind. And that's why the mind can be very displeased with it and dislike it, simply saying, no, let's do something dynamic. But remember that this stability, which is practiced in meditation and which is one of the qualities of the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, is extremely precious. This is the dimension of Purusha. This is the dimension of the Nirvikalpa Samadhi from classical yoga. This is the dimension of Nirvana or the void as described by the Buddhist tradition. If you cannot be like a non-flickering flame for a while, then there is no Samadhi, then there is no enlightenment, then there is no union with the spiritual nature, then you are not practicing union with the self. The union with the self, the yoga in which one is united with the self, automatically tends to bring void, a great peace, rest, repose, the universal void, the nirvikalpa, as a state of peaceful awareness. Many people feel that this peacefulness is like death because they are used to be restless. And the more mercurian and agitated the mind is, the more violent this conflict becomes because people are simply afraid, reluctant, to just go into these states of absorption, of fixation, of being completely frozen in their practice. That is why this simile as a lamp placed in a windless spot does not flicker. To such is compared the yogi of controlled mind practicing the yoga of the self, uniting with the self. This has been used a lot to advise yoga practices such as Shavasana, the posture of the corpse, like it's perhaps the easiest posture of all yoga. Then why not practice it for one hour, for two hours, just to see what's happening? Because physically it's easy. The mind is the only barrier in such a posture. Why not extend the duration of meditation and make the meditation very stable? This is used by some yogis for, with reference to calming down of the breath. It is very much a simile, even a visual simile 
of the practice of Trataka, in which people sometimes focus directly on a candle, on a flame, and provided that you make sure that there is no motion, fanning, or something in the room, then that candle flame can be dead stable, very calm, and by looking at it without blinking or winking, you start freezing in the same state of calmness, of immobility, and a lot of practices of yoga moving towards this self-induced immobility are therefore justified by this shloka in the Bhagavad Gita, where Krishna speaks of concentration, of one-pointedness of the mind. Some people would like to go beyond it. Some people would like to skip this stage. But truly, it's not only about the mind. It is about the fact that beyond the mind, above the mind, we have the Supreme Self. And this higher self is like a candle flame that does not flicker. It is like a stable light. It is a self-effulgent light born out of itself. And it is a, a peaceful light, a gentle light, as described by Christian mystics in the 15th century. And this is, again, an object of meditation for everybody practicing spirituality, because spirituality goes exactly in the direction of cultivating this peace this immobility, the incapacity to be immobile even for 5, 10, 15 minutes shows ultimately a shortcoming in the spiritual progress. The spiritual progress appears also by the measure of the mental concentration, how much you can calm down the flame of your candle. In the shloka number 20, Krishna continues saying in the same trend about the peace. Here he insists on this quietness, quietude. And in number 20, he continues by saying, when the mind restrained by the practice of yoga, restrained, it is a verb, it is a word, which is used like the word harness. It's like you harness a horse. A horse, if it is not trained, it tends to be wild and in undisciplined. But the mind has to be trained, harnessed. And of course, it dislikes it. If you try to tame a horse, the horse in the beginning will fight, sometimes bitterly, against any form of harnessing. But a horse that is not properly harnessed cannot be used. And that is why... It is the mind becomes useful in the moment when you manage to restrain it, to tame it. So when the mind restrained by the practice of yoga attains to quietude, to this peace, and when seeing the self by the self, he is satisfied in his own self, and then he will continue, of course, because he says when, 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 when the yogi feels that infinite bliss which can be grasped by the pure intellect, by the consciousness only, 
and which transcends the senses and established wherein he moves, he never moves from the reality, which having obtained he thinks there is no other gain superior to it, wherein established he is not moved even by heavy sorrow. Let that be known by the name of yoga, the severance from union with pain. This yoga should be practiced with determination and with an unresponding mind. When the mind restrained by the practice of yoga, there are people who complain the practice of yoga is too disciplined. It has to be restraining the mind. The mind will not be restrained by itself. There are some people who give the impression sometimes that there would be some other ways. But when you look at the ancient prophets of Israel and their self-discipline in the desert, when you look at the fathers of the desert from Christianity and the great mystics and saints of Christianity, when you look at the great mystics of Islam, especially the Sufi mystics which have reached uh, some of the acme levels of spiritual enlightenment there, when you look at people practicing Buddhism, either under its southern forms or under its northern forms, when you look at different Hindu practices, you see always that the mind has to be harnessed, that without taming the mind, spiritual practice cannot be done properly. There are people who give the impression that it's not important, there are people who, in mysticism, they will say, no, what is important is that you should be possessed by great love, for example. Like Saint Augustine, one of the early saints of Christianity, he says, love God and do what you want. But that love God is very, very important because at, automatically that prevents the consciousness from going in the low chakras, when you love God, your consciousness is in Anahata Chakra and higher, burning like a fire in a fire pit. So, upsurging, not even completely in Anahata, from Anahata and up, moving up. And then when you do that, of course at the same time, that is a restraining of the mind but it is a restraining of the mind done indirectly. You are using a harness of love because of the frantic love, because of the frantic aspiration and devotion which I have for God. I am attracted magnetically. I am fascinated by this higher consciousness and I want to be in the presence of that and as St. Peter of Damascus said, the mind wants to think only about that. The emotions want to go only into that. It's like somebody who is obsessed, but in the positive meaning of the word, obsessed by something wonderful. It has been compared by Ramakrishna in India with the obsession which a mother has for her baby, which the obsession which is not an obsession in the bad meaning of the word, which a newlywed woman has for her lover, for her husband, like a sort of incredible focusing, one-pointed focusing, and it's like you don't make any effort 
But of course there is an effort for somebody to move into love. It is difficult because this exclusive devotion is very, very difficult to attain. For a mother to move at the level of Vishuddha Chakra and have this maternity of a pure kind, it is so difficult that many women today, especially in Kali Yuga, they can't even make the leap. They go into depression after birth. They don't recognize or acknowledge their baby. They want to abandon their baby. They have some of the most strange reactions because they know that if I acknowledge this, then I have to be body and soul. Then I have to be like a hawk. I have to think about almost nothing else the whole day long. Therefore, that becomes like a concentration of the mind. That becomes like a stability, an absorption in one direction. That's why being in love, being a mother, and other such conditions, they can be used. And the mystics from Christianity, from Hinduism and others, they of course did use these similes and they said, no, it's not only about the mind. When your love is overwhelming, when your surrender and devotion is overwhelming, almost automatically you go there. But that is still a way of restraining the mind. That's why some people, when they have to go even in a 10-day retreat of meditation, when they want to go into a monastery for a long time or something, they feel a huge conflict. There is a huge struggle and they feel fear and other things because constantly your mind wants to relapse. It hates to be restrained. Like you are going to go in a place and there is going to be no internet, no news, no movies, no Facebook, no chit-chatting, no this, no that. It's like you can't. How, who can do that? And of course, yoga is aware that especially in a time like Kali Yuga, where people's minds is so disturbed by this environment, this is a transition which has to be done slowly. Spirituality can be less and less abrupt these days because the difference between the world where we come from and this world of stability into spirituality has become so great that people constantly have regrets. We sometimes find people that they are fanatically enthusiastic about yoga in the beginning and they push themselves in the first three months, six months of their contact with a yoga school like Agama, they go on fire completely and they push themselves to practice and they say, I found my place, I found my way, this is it, I want to do it. And then it's like six months later, it's like their fire was a straw fire, a paper fire. It just burned itself out quickly, brightly, but then there is no duration to it. There is no perseverance to it. It is like these people are trying to bite something which is too hard and they break their teeth in the process and then they are like disappointed, scared, 
I have seen people who would do six months yoga like crazy, and then after six months they would develop a reaction against yoga, a sort of neurosis, a sort of neurotic blockage in which suddenly their perseverance was destroyed. That's why in yoga we tell to people it's much more important if you can do a little bit every day for the rest of your life. That's what delivers the goods. A steady effort is exactly showing the fact that you are going in that direction. Short, mad efforts, these are extremes. These are not the middle path. It is like the Zen Japanese Buddhists say when they say patience is the beginning of wisdom. Without patience, where? You cannot have wisdom. Spirituality is a lifelong thing. I remember once having seen a very sweet interview with a very respectable Christian mystic, one of these people who followed in the footpath of the fathers of the desert, and he was asked, what advice do you have for the people out there? And he repeated at least 50 times the word patience. He said, the only thing which I can tell them is patience, 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 patience. And when you think you have reached the end, then start all over again. Patience, 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 patience. And he said, when I was young, this old man, now he has passed away, so one of the old mystics, of the Orthodox Christian Church, when he was, and he said, when I was young, I received this advice from my advisor, from my spiritual guide, and we were three young men, he said, who were asking for his final words of advice, because we are not going to see him for a long time. And this guy told us exactly this, patience, 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 litany there, and one of us, was kind of a bit more restless or more reckless or something. And he said, Father, but until when this patience? And the old man told him, this patience has to be till the very end, not until the summer agricultural works. He used the very farming word, which means plowing or something, which means when you do some work in the field in the summer, like the farmers do. He said, not until the time, that's until when there should be this patience. Therefore, this harnessing here when he says, when the mind restrained by the practice of yoga, there are people who say, but I don't want to restrain myself. There are people who hide under the word freedom, just a reckless, demonic, restless, impatient temperament, and they say, no, no, I don't want to restrain myself. I want to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I just want to be free. Which is absurd, because the human life and consciousness is made of restraint. When you are confronted with hunger or thirst, you do not react automatically and animally, but you react with restraint. 
when you are confronted with biological needs such as peeing or defecating or something, you are not doing it like an animal on the spot where it happens, but you exert restraint. When you are confronted with sexual arousal because of the sight of the opposite gender or of a powerful stimulus thereof, you don't behave like an animal and just go for it in the very same second. You exert a censorship and a restraint. The whole human life, and these are very gross biological examples, but I chose them on purpose to show that from the very first time, that's how we are not like animals. Animals, when they feel like mating, they mate. When they feel like defecating, they defecate. When they feel like eating or drinking, they do. And there is no censorship or consciousness which says right now it's not the appropriate moment. Within some reasonable limits, I can control myself, myself and I can divert that. That's why I do not fall in people who say, I don't want to control nothing. I just want to be free whenever, however. Those people basically say, I want to be like an animal. It is the very essence of consciousness and of the human condition that we exert a certain restraint upon ourselves. If you feel that you want to cut off the head of somebody or blow off the head of somebody, you most often don't do it. You practice non-violence, you practice loving kindness, you practice compassion, and you simply don't do it. Sometimes it's not even about later. It's about never. You simply say, now I feel a great powerful state of hate towards this person. And I'm refraining from it. I'm turning my hate into compassion, into tolerance. I'm trying to discover love. That's why it's the very nature of consciousness that human beings must exert a constraint and a restraining thing. This is exactly the opposite of entropy. Entropy means chaos. You don't exert any effort and the pyramids of Egypt turn into a mound of sand, rubble and then sand, which is then blown by the wind. Just give a million years or a million million years and the pyramids of Egypt are turned into grains of sand and they are not in that latitude and that longitude anymore. You don't have any to do anything to allow the pyramids of Egypt to get dissolved into oblivion. But to build the pyramids of Egypt, you need a lot of effort, a lot of disciplined restraint using work, effort, engineering, planning, and a lot of other things. And that is why the very first statement here is, of course, expressing this unentropic, anti-entropic, non-entropic direction. So when the mind, restrained by the practice of yoga, attains to quietude, which simply says the mind without the restraint to the practice of yoga, can hardly reach to quietude. If you let the mind roam, the mind is a monkey. It stays mobile and agitated all the time, and it never finds a moment of peace. The same with the body. You have to tell to your mind. 
you have to tell to your body, now stay. It is one of the most common things when people want to do a meditation, when people want to start a yoga session, because that's their sadhana, that's their daily practice, which is the most common obstacle? That the mind always comes up and says, I have to do something. I have to achieve something. It's the mind would hate to stop. If you tell to your mind now, for two hours, we are going to do some exercises in which from time to time you will stop. Ten minutes on Muladhara Chakra when you do the Paschimottanasana. Ten minutes on the Heart Chakra when you do your Bhujangasana. And so on and so forth. And the mind says, yes, but uh, you did not verify, I don't know what, the news. Maybe the Third World War has started and you don't know. There was an earthquake yesterday in Indonesia or something. Maybe you don't know the latest news, which is, of course, just the illusion of the mind that there is always, always, always something to be done before you sit down to do meditation. Before That's just an excuse. Some people say, I cannot do yoga if I don't clean my house. That's why the Zen masters of Japan, they simply said, live in a Zen temple. The Zen environment means almost no furniture, no shelves, no objects, no possession. All of you have seen images of Zen, which is utter simplicity and exceptional cleanliness, like Keep everything scrupulously clean and empty. And in the moment when you are in an empty, super clean room, then what else is there to do? Like the mind is handicapped from giving these pathetic excuses. No, first you have to do your laundry. But the question is, if you are going to die tonight and this is the last day of your life, what is more important, that you would have done some extra meditation or that you would have finished your laundry. You prefer to die with clean laundry or with a clean mind. And of course everybody knows the answer. And yet the mind always practices this because the mind opposes restraint. The mind opposes this quietude, this peace. That state in which Thought settled to the practice of yoga, retires, stays, in which seeing the self by the self alone, he finds containment in the self. When seeing the self by the self, he is satisfied in his own self. It is the third time in the six chapters until now that Krishna mentions this, to see the self by the self and specially to be satisfied in your own self. This is the place where you separate the self, the true self, from the mind. I told many times, and I'm not going to take this, listen to the previous satsangs, it is in at least two of those sessions that people unfortunately do not define themselves by I am. Who am I? I am Shiva. I am consciousness and bliss without end. I am that. I am the consciousness, the pure consciousness. People do not define themselves by that and say, 
I am the pure consciousness and therefore I am blissed out, I am divine, I am satisfied. People define themselves by what they do. Did you polish your shoes today? Did you do your laundry? Did you do the good deed of the day? Did you do... This is a spirit which is produced by rajas. Rajas guna is making the people active and defined by their activity and by a desire without end. And that's why, unfortunately, people cannot be satisfied in the self, with the self, by the self. People would go and they would say, let's go now into a state of void. Let us go now into a state of silence. There is a story from the Chinese philosophy with Lao Tzu and another philosopher. They meet for consultation and they had a habit that every morning they walk through the dawn and they just look at the sunset and they witness the birth of a new day and the song of the birds. And it's a very, very quiet twilight philosophical moment in early morning where these two great philosophers, they are sharing a moment of silence. And one of them brings a friend. And that friend botches it from the first morning while they are just sitting and breathing the sunrise. The friend says, this is so magic, it's so beautiful. At which the next morning, the first of the philosophers tells to the second, please don't bring that man anymore. You know, it's like he's a pain in the neck. He didn't understand anything. Because for some people can't even stay quiet. If it's too much of a silence, they feel like an itch. Like I have to say something smart. Because I have to fill up the silence. The silence feels like a void, feels like embarrassing, like we are sitting here like a triplet of morons and nobody says anything. Maybe one of us should say something. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe everybody should shut up. Because by if you try to say something, you are dominated by this rajas, guna, activity. Let's do something. But there is a beauty there is a divinity, there is the real truth, is exactly in this void, in this silence. The first sage, Lao Tzu, if I remember correctly, when I read this story, was very pleased with the second one. Like, you are truly wise. You understood the essence of wisdom. We can very easily share every morning this moment of silent bliss this moment of samadhi in which there is nothing to say because it just is. Nothing has to happen. It's not because something happens. It's simply because existence is pure and overwhelming and we are one with it and we are happy with it because of it, through it and we don't need anything else. We don't need any exceptional event, a, visi a visitation, a miracle. The miracle is right here. The miracle is in the cup of tea. You don't need anything for it. And he said, I'm happy with you because you cherish this. But that person, don't bring him again to our morning things. 
because that person spoils it. That person talked, which immediately shows that that person simply didn't get it yet. It is very easy from the level of one like Lao Tzu to see very clearly, like the person that hasn't reached this quietude, this harnessing of the mind, they, they expose themselves immediately, they reveal themselves immediately, because people go and say, let's watch the sunset, let's be in peace. And then somebody says, after five minutes, of course, five minutes are allowed, and then somebody says, guys, did you take dinner? Like the mental monkey wants to move further. It wants like, okay, we did five minutes of samadhi. Can we now do something? Like samadhi is boring. But it is boring only for a restless, unharnessed mind that you cannot just stay days and days without saying anything, without doing anything. I enjoy this state of inaction so much when I finish the season of teaching here, usually in September or something. It is my greatest bliss to be somewhere and to absolutely do nothing, see nobody, talk not, nothing, nothing, nothing. People, I'm coming from a social environment and from a family environment where people were evaluated by their work. People who are workaholics, industrious. You cannot lay on the job. You cannot play truant. You cannot, you always have to be uh, active. Um, Karl Marx said that it is work that made man. Man was made by work. If you don't work, you re-become an animal. You become a parasite. You are not... Like this environment that you have to make yourself useful. And it is so very difficult to realize a state of mind which is without sleepiness, drowsy, laziness, obscurity, tamas. Therefore, a state of mind in which you are aware, not knocked out with a baseball bat or drunk or under the influence of a stupefying drug, but where you are wide awake, conscious, and at the same time you are not rajasic. You are not inclined to do anything. You, you don't feel useless. You don't feel a parasite. You don't feel like, my God, my life is passing right now. What am I doing? This is the greatest doing. The greatest doing is just being. Doing nothing. But this is so very difficult that people should be satisfied by the self, through the self. I look in the mirror and I can see that I am. And that makes me happy. I don't need to do anything. I just am. What have you done today? Nothing. I've just been. And to be, it's so peaceful. People are praising the industriousness. You know, you should make money. You should do this. You should do that. That is not the way to nirvana. Of course, in the daily life, you need to be able to have the polarities of life. But you need to be able to know this middle path. This golden middle 
because without it, you cannot reach the true peace. This is very important. Meditate. How many of you are happy just because you are? As I was saying it one of the previous times when I mentioned this, we apply this in relationships. We are not happy that our lover, somebody that we love, a child, a mother or a father, a lover, an excellent friend, we, we are not happy that they just exist. They have to do something for us. But the ultimate thing, as you can see, read in Kahlil Gibran's hymn on love, it's like you have to have gratitude just for this existence. Wake up in the morning with a song of gratitude in your heart for the beloved, just for the existence of it. I don't love you because you brought me flowers. I love you because you are. You exist. I am happy that you exist. It is a bliss in the fact that somehow God has made you the way you are. And you are in my presence. That's all I need. I don't need any proof of anything. I don't need any accomplishment of any kind. I'm just happy that love is there and that pure existence is there. It is very difficult. Many spiritual practices in Zen Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism, in Christian mysticism, they push people, in Sufi mysticism a lot, they push people through these periods of retreat and of doing nothing. And after a few days in which you sleep like crazy, and then you can't sleep anymore simply as much as you try, and then, after, then you go into the part where you start fretting. You start vibrating like I need to do something. I have to do something. And if you manage to go over these two bumps, the bump of just falling into drowsy and slumber, and the bump of going into hyperactivity, then beyond them you find this higher reality in which just sitting, just being, makes you happy. It is enough for being happy because you exist, because there is a miracle in the fact that we exist. To be or not to be, that is the question brilliantly says Shakespeare, because to be is the very mark of God. Existence is consciousness. If there would not exist life, if there would not exist intelligence, and if there would not exist awareness, consciousness, as a triad, as a hierarchy, then we would not have the feeling, I am, I exist. Thus, existence in itself is a divine miracle and it is the acknowledging, it is the assertion of the fact that the divine consciousness is present, that we are out of death. Lead me from death to immortality. I am not dead, I exist. This existence is the opposite of death. It is eternal life. And that is why 
people have to learn in spirituality to go over this boredom. The mental monkey creates a boredom. And Krishna has said it by now three times. Seeing the self by the self. I commented that earlier, a couple of weeks, when Krishna said that you have to rise yourself by the self because your lower self is the image, the reflection of the higher self. So you can rise your ego and your lower personality by comparing it with the pure existence of the higher self. Jesus says, be perfect. But he doesn't stop here because everybody would say, right. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is. He gives a measure. He gives a comparison. He says, when you want to be perfect, be perfect as your Father in heaven is. If the Father in heaven wouldn't be perfection itself, the absolute consciousness, how could you be perfect? There is nothing to measure yourself by. There is nothing to refer yourself to. And that's why you have to rise the self by the self. And here he says, seeing the self by the self. It is the fact that you have a personality. The fact that you have a consciousness and a conscience that is the measure of God and of the higher self. The fact that we exist even as ignorant, selfish people is nevertheless a measure of the higher self because we still have consciousness. We still have the Buddha nature in us. We have the Atman, the awareness in us and thus see the self by the self. When the mind restrained by the practice of yoga attains to quietude, and in that quietude, like a candle flame which does not flicker, seeing the self by the self, understanding that this I am, who am I? I am, but who am I? He is, and when he is satisfied with his own self, I don't need material things. I don't need energetical things. I don't need emotional things. I don't need mental things. I don't need even karmic things. I'm satisfied by the self, in the self. The mere fact that I exist is a gift. I remember when meditating in some of these ways, I constantly had like a song in my heart, in my being, which simply shouted inwardly how amazing it is, how ecstatic it is to have a soul. Just the very fact that we humans have a soul. It's such a joy, such a gratitude, such an infinite gift in the fact that we have a soul. And of course some of us don't feel our souls, but some of us, or at least in some blessed opportunities, you feel your soul. You feel like generosity, 
gratitude, immortality, compassion, love, kindness, and um, an um, amazing gifts of the Holy Spirit are all of them flowing in our soul. And it is so wonderful to have a soul which can feel those things, which can nourish such feelings. If I would be a cow, maybe I wouldn't be at the level to feel noble thoughts of loving kindness, of compassion, of surrender, of eternity. It is so, I'm so grateful that somehow I reach to this evolutionary level where the universe has put in me this Buddha nature and this soul, because with this soul I can feel this grace flowing through me. Sometimes, especially when you meditate on Jivatman in the heart chakra, when you go in the deep sub-levels of the heart chakra with music, with devotion, that's why we are inviting all of you to participate in bhajan, kirtan, to open your hearts and to feel these things, because it's about feeling the soul. Some people, when they feel the soul, they become embarrassed, because they become suddenly very gentle, very soft. They may feel that there is so much love and so much beauty, that tears will start flowing on your cheeks in a state of semi-ecstasy. And some people are embarrassed of having a soul because it shows like too much beauty. It's like you are afraid that everybody can see this thing shining out of you. But ultimately spiritual beings praise this beyond measure because this is really what makes us divine and spiritual. And that is why that state in which the thought settled to the practice of yoga retires, in which seeing the self by the self alone, he finds contentment in the self. This is, once more, I said it the last time when I commented this, this is the true meaning of the Narcissus myth in Greece. All the Greek myths, Oedipus and others and others, the gods they have, they are astrological, mystical, magical, occult, and very psychoanalytical. Modern psychoanalysis draws a lot from the Greek mythology through Freud and Jung and their studies. And in the Greek mythology, this mysterious myth of Narcissus is about a guy who sees himself in the water and he suddenly says, my God, I am so beautiful and he falls in love with himself. And today the word narcissism is used like meaning selfishness, egocentrism. That's a distortion. It is not the original meaning in the myth, because Narcissus was never selfish. He never does anything selfish. He's all the time like hypnotized and fascinated, not by himself to satisfy himself as a bastard, as a beast, as a gross being. He's simply fascinated by the depths, by the beauty, by the magic which he discovers just by seeing himself. And then he forgets to eat, he forgets to drink, he is consumed by a love and the very fact that there is love, then there cannot be ego because where there is love there is no selfishness and where there is selfishness, there cannot be true love. 
and he loves himself so much that he falls dead in that spot after a few consuming days and weeks of self-discovery and says the Greek mythology in the spot where he died a white immaculate flower grew out of his body and that has become the Narcissus flower which is a white variety of daffodil. It's a white daffodil which is having five petals and immaculately white being considered in folklore the whitest of all flowers, the brightest of all flowers. It's not a coincidence. If Narcissus would have been a selfish bastard, he would not have generated the most pure flower out of him. That flower is the product of divinity, grace, and enlightenment. And the myth of Narcissus is a myth of self-realization, of knowing yourself. And as Krishna says, being satisfied with yourself, there is nothing to be else. But for example, as somebody very intelligently was telling me a week ago or so, this was the tragedy of one like Robinson Crusoe. Robinson Crusoe, the hero of the novel, he had the maximum opportunity to reach enlightenment. Robinson Crusoe was positioned perfectly for becoming a Milarepa. But he started building boats and practicing agriculture and carving idols out of wood because he could not be satisfied with just being. He was not a spiritual person, and he felt, I am going crazy. I have to do something. That's a very important barrier, which separates the rajasic, goal-oriented world from the contemplative life, that you have to see the contemplative light. I think it's a great merit that in a society like a Buddhist society like in Thailand, young men were traditionally advised, once in your life, preferably when you are younger rather than later, shave your head and spend three months in a Buddhist temple, begging your food every day and doing meditation. Doing meditation and doing nothing. Get confronted with this incredible contrast that in the middle of life, there is an oasis of peace. In the middle of the human being, there is an island of peace. We have Atman, or the Buddha nature in us, and we can always run away from the external world in the moment when it drives us too crazy. We can center ourselves, lock our doors and windows, rise the eightfold wall around ourselves, and be in our inner castle, as St. Teresa of Avila calls it. Live like a castle owner in your castle. Enjoy the inner presence, the peace, the grace which is there. Rumi says, while you are looking for the treasure outside of your house, and you find only trinkets and you lose yourself in the desert, there is a treasure house waiting for you in your own house. And he concludes by saying, there is no need to suffer. God is here. We always think that we have to go somewhere. 
but we have to cultivate this peace. We have to defeat our tamas and our drowsiness, our obscurity, and we have to defeat our rajas, our desire without end and our restlessness, and to find this satisfaction with the self. Learn to be happy because you are. There is true wisdom in it. See your inner nature because your inner nature is the nature of God. It is the divine nature. Shankaracharya, Adi Shankaracharya says, as I quoted early already, I quoted him earlier. He says, who am I? I am consciousness and bliss without end. I am Shiva, I am Shiva. In me, there is the ultimate happiness and satisfaction. Even Krishna, later here, he says, this is, he then, he is not moved by sorrow, and he reaches. In 21, he says, he said in number 20, when the mind restrained by the practice of yoga attains to this quietude, and when seeing the self by the self, like by I am, how can you see the self? by the lower self, by me, by I am. And when he is satisfied in his own self, he has learned to be there peaceful in yourself, with yourself, with no concern, with no thought, just cultivating 15 minutes of peace. Have your own peace from time to time. Withdraw from the external world and learn to center yourself, to regenerate yourself. When all those, and then he continues now in the strophe number 21. When he, when the yogi, of course she as well, when the yogi or the yogini feels that infinite bliss which can be grasped by the pure intellect. So there is an infinite bliss. Once you go into this, then Krishna confirms Shankaracharya, or better said chronologically, Shankaracharya confirms Krishna, since Shankaracharya is born many centuries later than Krishna. Krishna says when the yogi finds the infinite bliss, the first step is that you see the self by the self. The next step is that you are happy in the self. You are satisfied with the self. Okay, maybe the mental monkey is not trained enough and after 15 minutes it takes you out of your peace, takes you out of your meditation and says, it's time to do something. After all, the day is passing. Okay, that's just the painful mind which keeps torturing us with all sorts of maya, with all sorts of phantasmagoric needs ultimately. But when you have reached that at least, and then the next step, when he, the yogi, feels that infinite bliss which can be grasped by the pure intellect and which transcends the senses, there exists a bliss. We all look for happiness. But says Krishna, that happiness transcends the senses. It's not something which you smell. It's not something which you taste. It's not something which you see. It's not something which you feel tactile and it's not something which you hear. 
It's something beyond the senses. It can be grasped by the pure intellect, not even by the lower intellect, because the lower intellect called in yoga manas and localized in the lower part of Ajna Chakra, the lower intellect is still processing the senses. The lower intellect manas is dealing with the five senses and with the sixth sense, which means that even when we don't smell, taste, see, and so on, we can close our eyes and we can remember, we can dream, and those are still some senses, but a bit more delicate, a little bit more discreet, and therefore even that is too little. The five senses plus the sixth sense, the inner sense, are not enough. When you go to the pure intellect, to the higher level of the mind, which is called in Sanskrit yoga, buddhi, the enlightened mind, the mind of knowledge. That's why Buddha is called Buddha from buddhi. It's the same word there. And that higher intellect, can, and tra which transcends the senses, can grasp the infinite bliss. Anybody who looks for happiness in the five senses or in the lower mind is bound to never find it. That's why normal people, maybe they are romantic when they are young and they say, I'm going to find something. But then after they take blow after blow, after they bite the dust and bite the dust, after they take disappointment after disappointment and defeat after defeat in the daily life. And as you get older and your ojas and vital energy decreases and as you get more and more tired and as you get less and less enthusiastic, then suddenly people even lose the hope that there is bliss. People say happiness. What happiness? Many men and women, when they reach to their midlife crisis, they are ready to become materialistic and cynical. It's a well-known thing that people who have gone over their midlife crisis, they become somewhat disenchanted. It's like, yeah, but ultimately, that's what life is made of. That's what we all have to do. When you are 20 years old, you thought, like in that proverb, that everything that flies can be eaten. Like you were in a certain way candid, naive. You thought that, oh, they can, it's so easy to do great things. And then it is usually the function, and not always a good function, of the older people to bring you down to earth, to pull you by the legs, and to say you don't know what life is made. Wait until you will be 60 years old like me. And then you will see what life is made of. Which means I also started with your dreams. And life has crushed me into the dust. Life has made me have a hard landing. And this is how I learned the hard way. That not everything which flies can be eaten. That there are many idealistic things which don't work. But for example, for a Shivananda, for a Ramakrishna, for a Jesus, that's not the case. They stay on their high horse, on their tall horse. 
They stand up there. They manage to go through the midlife crisis without losing this crazy idealism. They don't get brought down. They don't get smashed down by midlife crisis, by decrease of energy, by disappointments, by lack of fulfillment, because they manage to accept themselves. They manage to say, although I may be imperfect, and even my body goes down, my brain goes down, my life goes down biologically, nevertheless, in terms of pure existence, I am consciousness and bliss without end. I am Shiva, I am Shiva. And therefore, you can never drop your highest ideals. You should never drop your highest ideals just because you became disenchanted and old and tired. You have to make an effort, and that effort comes from the higher intellect. That's why the people who do not have a powerful higher intellect, which can dwell into ideals, into principles, into philosophy, into concepts, into metaphysics, they get lost because they get turned down by the physical body, by the etheric body, by the astral body, and then it's impossible to conceive that still there is something high there which although I may be going down, it's not there. I want to call your attention to the fact that many mystics have felt this conflict so bitterly that there were many mystics who chose to die young. Many mystics even didn't want to make it to the age of 40 or 50 or something and see this happening in their lives. They wanted to just, like a meteorite, like a comet, you know, flash forth powerfully, shine amazingly, and then die in full glory, die on top of your game. Don't even allow the biological mechanisms to take their toll. Even the Christian mystics, they considered the martyrs who were killed for their faith more fortunate than the people who had to survive till old age playing the game of spirituality. They even said there is martyrdom and then there is the martyrdom of every day. And there are people who every day they wake up in the morning and they start pushing that rock up the hill like Sisyphus. It is the martyrdom of every day that although your brain dies day after day, although your body goes down, although your ojas levels decrease, you have to keep the flag of enlightenment high. You have to keep the lion's roar loud. You have to be on top of your game in spite of the fact that everything in life crumbles under you. And that is why realize that the people don't even dare to hope. When they get to this level, people say, yeah, happiness. Where is happiness? Like I look around, none of my schoolmates reached happiness. None of my relatives reached happiness. There is no person in the world that I know of and that has reached happiness. So it means happiness is a myth. 
Happiness, what is meant by happiness is to be surrounded by dear people, to have a comfortable environment, to feel financially secure, to eat good food, to sleep in a comfortable bed, not to have pain, not to have debilitating diseases, to kind of sneak through life having pleasurable days, pleasant sensations, pleasant company, and then one day, hopefully, you die without a cancer, without a pain, without some big confrontation. And, you know, there are people who say, I prefer I die without feeling it in my sleep one night, and that's it. That would be happy. But that is a loss of hope at the same time, because indirectly such a person says, there is no happiness. Then when somebody tells you, but Buddha claims he reached happiness. Saint Teresa of Avila claims she reached bliss, ecstasy. Rumi or Ramakrishna or Milarepa or Ramana Maharishi, they claim that they have reached, that there is bliss. I am consciousness and bliss without end. That they have experienced it and that it's the birthright of every person. That everybody can experience bliss provided you do the right thing. People say, I don't know. Sounds a little bit far-fetched. Like when you look around, you don't see it happening because that's God's truth. 99.99% of the population doesn't reach bliss, happiness. Maybe occasionally, for a brief time, under the influence of an event in life, of a drug, of a sexual orgasm, of something... People are having something and say, today it was out there. You know, today it was completely out of proportion. It's like I never felt this day will be marked with red in my calendar. It was the one day in my life where I felt I was going to take off. I was going to explode in a myriad pieces and be bliss incarnate. Like some people reach on the fringe of it and they almost have a moment of saying there were some moments in my life where I skimmed on the surface of something. But otherwise, 99.99% of the people, they never reach bliss. All they reach is pleasure of the senses. And Krishna attracts the attention. In this stability, when you reach the self, when you are happy through the self, when you are peaceful inside and all those things which were said before, then he, the yogi, feels the in, that infinite bliss which can be grasped only by the pure intellect, by the higher part, by the fact that there is an idealistic, principle-oriented, archetype-oriented part in our mind and it can be grasped only by that pure intellect and which transcends the senses. See, Krishna gives so many pointers. He says, if you feel it with your senses, it's not it. It's something which transcends the senses. It's something which is not even an emotion. It transcends the emotional part of the mind. It is in the abstract, in the intellect part of the mind. People, there are people who say, will that matter? Of course it matters. Maybe some of you are not yet practiced enough 
experienced enough into this because there are people who say if it's not an emotion maybe I will not feel satisfied enough because just an intellectual principial happiness is not enough for me I'm, I'm a person made of blood and flesh and blood you know I need a, I need something concrete I need some meat to my happiness and to my daily life and now Krishna suggests that maybe there is a happiness but it's in the higher intellect and beyond the senses I don't know if I could be satisfied with that that's because you haven't experienced it yet and that's why you speculate because you try to understand something which you don't know by fitting it into something which you already know but this may be an experience which is existentially completely new because this higher nature this higher intellect this causal body of bliss we are talking here about the fourth body the fifth body and on these ones they are closer to your essence they are closer to Atman. If Atman is the center of your being and you are like an onion made of layers, which are precisely the koshas, the layers of the body, then the physical body is the outermost layer and thus the most superficial. And the etheric body is the second. And the astral body is the third. So these are the three most superficial layers. We feel them very much and we are so much impressed by them. But our true nature is deep, deep inside. And actually, the deeper we go, the more close we feel to ourselves. Emotions and energy and body and physical things, they are not deep enough to make us feel ourselves. How many people did not feel satisfactory emotions? And did they become closer to themselves? Did they become enlightened? Those emotions don't even last. You have a satisfactory emo emotion today, and one week later it's replaced by a shitty one. They can't even last forever. And therefore, the great yogis have realized there is no happiness into that. Those are things which come and go. And generally in life, they are 50-50. 50% positive, 50% negative. They, if you have 50% hills and 50% 50, 50 valleys, there is no other way. Therefore, you cannot hope to have a life of only good emotions, of only good energies, of only good physical things. It doesn't exist. There is sun and moon. There is light and darkness. There is plus and minus. There is masculine and feminine. There is always yin and yang in this life. That you have to put up with it. That from now till the end of your existence in this manifestation, not only physically, but in this manifestation, you will sail through an ocean called by Buddha samsara, which is made of highs and lows and highs and lows, forever. There is no permanent high. But there is happiness, which is not a high, and that happiness is being close to yourself. It is being at home. It is reaching meaning. 
It is reaching the true freedom. And that is the spiritual realization and the realization of consciousness. And to read completely the shloka number 21, Krishna says, when the yogi feels that infinite bliss, which can be grasped by the pure intellect alone and which transcends the senses, and established wherein he never moves from the reality. Like, yes, there are physical things which go up and down. There are energy things which go up and down. There are emotions which go up and down. There are even thoughts in our mind which go optimistic or pessimistic. However, Krishna says when he is established therein and he never moves from the reality. Like, I have discovered this inner reality and then the fact that I have a good day, a bad day, it's a good astrological circumstance, a bad astrological circumstance. I am getting some good karma to come and be. I'm getting some negative karma to come and be. I am getting good emotions, negative emotions. All of it can be subordinated to the center. There is something more important than the sides of the seesaw. The seesaw constantly moves up and down. But there is a midpoint of the seesaw which never moves, which is stable. That midpoint controls the wings of the seesaw. In the moment when I have access to this self and I discover this self and I'm happy that I am, in that moment a positive emotion or a negative emotion, both of them can be used and they are not going to diminish my unhappiness. Oh, my happiness. The fact that one moment I can feel a very nice positive emotion, like I feel satisfied, content, that is so easy to produce, is just your brain producing some endorphins, just your brain producing some serotonin or dopamine. There are a few hormones produced by the brain, and if you get them abundantly produced, you feel like paradise. You don't feel any pain. You feel pleasure and satisfaction in every corner of your body. And, you know, and then you feel organically. You wake up and you say, I feel so good. And there are people whose brain started producing less serotonin, less dopamine, less endorphins. And those people slowly, slowly descend into grumpiness, into moroseness, into hell, into sadness, into this. And it is one of the things which actually inevitably happens a little bit to some people going in their old age because generally the body starts producing less hormones and many of the things which accompany youthfulness. But if you eat chocolate, chocolate cocoa has some substances in it which determine your brain to produce endorphins. That's why chocolate creates a chemical happiness in you. However, that happiness is not real happiness. It can be induced chemically. If you really want to go to the acme of it, then take a shot of heroin. That, that can take you to the full Monty. You can see a chemical happiness 
which is like thousands of orgasms packed together, stacked on top of each other. But the problem is, what will you do when you don't have the heroin anymore? Because you can't continue with that. The problem is that many people declare their happiness and satisfaction by some criteria which are purely chemical, organic. I'm telling you very clearly and verify me on this one for the next 20 years of your life. If you have serotonin, dopamine, endorphin in your blood, you feel happy. Even when some tragedy happens in your life, you say, I don't know why, but it doesn't affect me at all. That's because we are so dependent on some simple chemical things. And if our body starts producing less hormones like those, and perhaps others who are, that are involved into it, suddenly our world is upside down. All our ships have wrecked already. All, nothing works, we are sad, we are grumpy, we are not fulfilled. And of course, as a yogi, and as a free spirit, as a human being that goes beyond that, you have to be able to go beyond this. Either I have pleasure or pain, either I have serotonin or not so much, I still should be able to be happy. There is a happiness which is not about the organic state of my body, but our physical body takes at least 95% of our attention and it is very clamorous. It's in our faces. It is so obvious. And therefore, unfortunately, like Socrates said, there are people walking on the street. Every man walks together with a pig. And unfortunately, most of the time, I see the pig riding on the back of the man, not the man riding on the back of the pig. The pig is the animal nature, the physical body. And Socrates, two, 20, more than 2,000 years ago, he said people are the slaves of their physical body, animal nature. Your body does not produce endorphins. You are upside down the whole day. You woke up on the wrong side of the bed or whatever the expression is. You are completely not harmonious. And it's a chemical thing. If somebody comes and would give you an injection with the missing endorphins or serotonin or whatever you are missing, suddenly you'd be straight as rain and the smile would be back on your face. So important the physical body is. That's why it is so difficult to liberate yourself from the physical body. That's why 99.99% of the people are in samsara and they have to reincarnate again and again and again and again and again in the physical world because people in their life, they don't develop any independence from the physical body. The physical body runs the show. While we are supposed to be free spirits, which can laugh in the face of the physical body and say, oh, physical body, you are going down, but I am not going down. I am he that I am. I am consciousness and bliss without end. Nevertheless, we listen to the physical body. We have sex or we don't have sex. We ate something good or we ate something bad. We slept well or we didn't sleep well last night. Whatever we do turns us inside out and upside down and our life can be happy or unhappy, which is not the real meaning of the word happiness, according to these biological things. 
And that is why, remember time and again, that here we are talking about something that we do not move from a reality. We find the reality with a capital R. I know who I am, and then I know. Everybody here knows. If you are going to live a hundred years of age, which maybe some of you wish, then you probably know that by the time you will be 80, you will have a chewing device and probably no more teeth in your mouth. Very few people have all their teeth in their mouth when they are over 80. So I hope you realize that if you will live a hundred years of age, you will have maximum half of the teeth you have in your mouth now. So be prepared to live without teeth. It's not a very funny life to live without teeth. Food doesn't have the same flavor when you eat it through a plastic device. It's one of the things you have to learn to live with it. Can you be happy then? That's why there are many people who say, I would prefer to die suddenly by the age of 50. I would like to be happy till I am 50 and then poof, just vanish. Please, God, take me away because then what comes next it will have good days, but also bad days. People are afraid to confront disease, accident, invalidity, pain, suffering, emotional things, precisely because they are not grounded in this reality. And I'm not saying that people that found the reality should now flex their muscle and show that they can take it. But they can take it. Ramakrishna was dying of cancer and he said, don't worry, myself is submerged in the bliss of the Supreme Self and it feels like the body is far, far away somewhere. So I'm, a, I'm aware of the pain, but I'm, my consciousness is not in the pain. When Milarepa got poisoned, he claimed that he was experiencing a tremendous pain. And there were a couple of cynical, skeptical people who didn't believe him. And he accepted to project the pain first on a rock. And when he projected just one-tenth of his pain on that rock, a huge boulder, it simply cracked into pieces because of the tension which Milarepa was experiencing. And then he projected it into a door made of wood, and the wood of the door bent twisted and it started wailing like a bending, like a creaking piece of wood, almost to the point of breaking. So Milarepa was, and he didn't say, this is the worst day of my life, you bastards, you poisoned me, and I'm dying in pain, and where is my happiness? Milarepa said, what, do you, what did you think to his disciples? He said, what did you think, that I was going to live forever? He said, life is an appearance. It's a transient phenomena. And for a number of years, I being with you as a teacher, I showed you the appearance of life. And now I'm going to show you the appearance of death. Both life and death are just two sides of one much bigger coin, which is called pure existence. And it has the appearance that now you are alive, incarnated, manifested, now you are dead. He 
He said, I have shown you the appearance of life. Now I'm going to show you the appearance of death. For me, makes no difference whatsoever. It's just two appearances of one and the same thing, and I am centered. That's what Krishna says when he never moves from the reality. Knowing that which is infinite joy and which lying beyond the senses is gained by the higher intellect and wherein established, truly he does not waver. And Krishna will continue, but it is too late for tonight. In two more strophes, Krishna announces these exceptional conditions of bliss, peace, finding the real self, being grounded in a reality which is beyond the senses and beyond the emotions and the lower parts of existence. And Krishna thus describes what the goal is, what the human being potentially can reach. Every one of you in this room can potentially reach this existential state because all of you are consciousness and bliss. All of you are the I am of the universe. All of you are Atman, the self, the higher self. And this is where this leads. Everyone here is born to an infinite potential. The funny thing is that sometimes people are like afraid of their own infinite potential. People are afraid to even hope and they prefer to divert their efforts into smaller places, into smaller directions. It is the task of Krishna. It is my task and it is the task of spirituality to tell you always, you could also try to stand up. Stand up. Don't accept to lie down and to crawl. Stand up. We know that not everybody will have the spine and the knees and the stomach for it. But we know that some of you will at least try to stand up. And that's a very worthy endeavor. Try to stand up to this reality. Because now and then one of you hits jackpot. And that makes it worth it. That makes it, all this effort worth it because a flower blossoms now and then. In the east, in the west, in the past, in the present, in the future, sometimes people reach this consciousness. And of course, it's not a sudden process. It's usually a gradual process, like a flower doesn't blossom suddenly. It may take days, hours, minutes in its process of budding, growing, opening, blooming, shining, spreading its perfume, and living its floral existence. Let us now stop and remain for a few moments in silence, allowing our subconscious mind to stay in peace, in pure self, happy with ourselves, and thus allow the message from the teaching of Krishna to sink deep, deep in. And of course, in the future, as you meditate, as you spiritually do your contemplations, <clears throat> you will remember and go deeper into the realization of this wonderful
fundamental spiritual truth. A few moments of silence to conclude in the appropriate way these revelations. And that will do. With this we finish for tonight. Namaste to all of you. Thank you for joining in the satsang.